Today is Wednesday, July the 5th, 2023. Welcome to the award-winning Personal Computer Show. I'm Hank Key, and do you know who has your personal data? Do you know how big tech companies are using your personal data? Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network, prn.live, that's L-I-V-E, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. You can leave us a message with your question or comment at hank at pcradioshow.org. When time is of the essence, and when there is a hard date or time for a decision that needs to be made, it is understandable that patches are thrown up that are not fully tested. But when there's not a drop-dead date or time immediacy for the patch or system change, too many patches are just thrown up without end-to-end testing and usability testing before release. But recently, a screw-up. Yes, a screw-up by the FDIC was welcome information. We would have never known about how $15.8 billion was released without proper approval. End-to-end testing is the testing methodology that validates a software workflow from start to end. The primary goal of end-to-end testing is to simulate an end-user's application journey and ensure that all integrated components dependencies, and other integrated pieces work as expected. Usability testing is to ensure the plan for product functions, features, and overall purpose are in line with what users want by observing how real-life people use the product. Usability testing allows you to learn things about user behavior, needs, and expectations up front. The FDIC was remiss with end-to-end testing and usability testing. Silicon Valley Bank, that's SVB, was shut down in March of 2023 by the California Department of Financial Protection and Innovation. It was based in Santa Clara, California. The bank was shut down after its investments greatly decreased in value and its depositors withdrew large amounts of money, among other factors. SVB's collapse came suddenly, following a frenetic 48 hours during which customers yanked deposits from the lender in a classic run on the bank. But the root of its demise goes back several years. Like many other banks, SVB plowed billions into U.S. government bonds during an era of near-zero interest rates. When federal regulators stepped in to back up all of Silicon Valley's bank's deposits, they saved thousands of small tech startups and prevented what could have been a catastrophic blow to a sector that relied heavily on the lender. But the decision to guarantee all accounts above the $250,000 federal deposit insurance limit also helped bigger companies that were in no real danger at all. Sequoia Capital, the world's most prominent venture capital firm, got covered the $1 billion it had with the lender, Kanzan Limited, a Beijing based tech company that runs mobile recruiting app Boss Zipin received a backstop to more than $900 million. A document from the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, which the agency said it mistakenly released unredacted in response to a Bloomberg News 
Freedom of Information Act request provides one of the most detailed glimpses yet into the bank's big customers. The FDIC, which had been selling off pieces of the bank since its failure, asked that Bloomberg destroy and not share the deposit list, saying the agency intended to partially withhold some details from the document because it included confidential commercial or financial information according to a letter from an attorney for the regulator. The agency subsequently declined to comment on the substance of the information in the document. U.S. regulators' decision to declare a systemic risk exception and make all deposits at Silicon Valley Bank whole came after a white-knuckle weekend as tech founders digested SVB's collapse on Friday, March the 10th. And President Joe Biden described the solution as one that protects American workers and small businesses and keeps our financial system safe. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen cast the government's response, including backstopping all depositors, as necessary. American households depend on banks to finance their homes, invest in an education, and otherwise improve their standards of living. Businesses borrow from these institutions to start new companies and expand existing ones, she said at an industry conference the following week before discussing the intervention. But the decisions that government agencies, including the FDIC, made in a frantic few days after SVB failed were immediately controversial. Some critics said that making all depositors whole at the lender and signature bank, which failed March 12th, created a moral hazard. A fierce debate is also raging over whether the insurance limit needs to be raised for businesses. It has been argued that backstopping all depositors amounted to a bailout. The government's decision to insure all deposits covered the Chinese companies that did business with the bank. In May, the FDIC proposed tagging the largest banks with billions of dollars in extra fees to replenish the U.S. government bedrock deposit insurance fund after it was tapped to backstop deposits above the $250,000 threshold. Those backstop deposits are passed on to the depositors of the banks, which is you and I and the public. At the time, the regulator estimated the decision to cover all depositors at SVB and Signature cost the fund about $15.8 billion. It's hard to believe this screw-up by the government is most welcome. If they had not accidentally released the information, we would not have known that this action was taken. The action taken should have been reviewed and received congressional approval. Reports says the FTC will try to break up Amazon in an upcoming antitrust case. For the government's consumer advocates, it's the biggest test yet. The Federal Trade Commission is set to launch an antitrust case against Amazon, the fourth against the retail king this year, and the biggest one yet, according to a report in Bloomberg News. The FTC's reportedly spent months preparing for a far-reaching case that charges Amazon with running a monopoly on its platform, forcing sellers to use its logistic services and penalizing those who don't. 
Amazon offers third-party sellers a range of services from shipping to advertising to warehousing. And the company's take has grown to the point where it takes in more than 50% of each sale. Given FTC Chair Lena Khan's background, it's likely that the government will try to break up Amazon once and for all. This case would mark the biggest test for FTC Chair Lena Khan, perhaps the business world's most frightening bogeyman. Khan rose to power on the heels of academic arguments that our existing antitrust legislation has everything regulators need to take on big tech. Khan's FTC has brought action against all of the big four consumer tech companies, with cases against Amazon, Google, and Meta, and ongoing investigation into Apple. It's made Khan the subject of endless attacks from corporate apologists like the editors of the Wall Street Journal's opinion pages, where she's painted as dangerous, irresponsible, and incompetent. Companies including Google and Amazon have attempted to make Khan recuse herself in other cases, given her history of legal arguments against big tech. It's likely that Amazon will make that request again, and it's likely that Khan will refuse. Amazon and the FTC did not immediately respond to a request for additional information. For years, big tech's worst alleged abuses went unchecked by the government, despite widespread bipartisan agreement that the technology industry needs reining in and loud calls from politicians that somebody really ought to do something about all this stuff. Under Khan's leadership, consumer advocates and tech critics believe they firmly have their champion. Khan's FTC has turned the tech industry's status quo on its head. For decades, conservatives fought to weaken the FTC and hobble the government's ability to stop monopolies in particular. But the FTC has done shuffling its feet. It's picked up the few anemic legal resources at its disposal and launched a series of cases and settlements that didn't seem possible just a few years ago. It's about as exciting as possible for the likes of a dry and carefully moving agency of lawyers and regulators. If the FTC is successful, it could deliver the internet that everyone from consumers to politicians have been clamoring for. Two electric flying car companies get key permit from the FAA. The FAA has granted limited flight licenses to not one, but two companies working on electric vertical takeoff and landing with the acronym EVTOL, one of which could even be considered an actual flying car. The first of these FAA special airworthiness certificates, which grant limited rights to operate an aircraft in U.S. airspace, was awarded to Joby Aviation and its six-rotor electric helicopter that's able to carry four passengers and a pilot for short hops. Specifically, Joby's certificate was awarded to the first vehicle to come off the company's pilot production assembly line in Marina, California, and means the business can test its design in anticipation of a 2024 delivery to the United States Air Force. The Special Airworthiness Certificate keeps the company on course to deliver the aircraft to the United States Air Force next year, 
which Joby says would be the first EV takeoff landing vehicle ever delivered to a customer. The company plans to launch an electric air taxi service in 2025. Joby's aircraft, which is able to reach air speeds of 200 miles per hour and has a range of 150 miles, was the first EV TOL to be granted military airworthiness approval as part of its participation in the U.S. Air Force Agility Prime Program, which the Air Force describes as a collaboration between civilian companies and the military to accelerate EV TOL development. Today's achievement is the culmination of years of investment in our processes and technology, and it marks a major step in our journey to scaled production, said Joe Ben Bevert, founder and CEO of Joby. Along with its deal with the U.S. Air Force and other military branches for a 2024 delivery, Joby also signed a deal late last year with Delta Airlines to add Joby aircraft to its fleet for shuttling travelers to and from airports. Joby said it already passed stages one and two of the five-step FAA clearance process for commercial flights and claims to be the first EV TOL maker in the United States to get this far. Joby said it's also on its way to completing stage three and will increasingly be focusing on the testing and analysis required to meet stage four approval. We have a clear path to aircraft type certification and expect to launch commercial passenger operations in 2025, said a Joby rep. Earlier this month, the FAA released guidelines for defining EVTOL pilot licensing requirements. So while Joby's goal of beginning commercial passenger operations in 2025 may seem ambitious, the feds are at least entertaining the possibility they'll make it. The aircraft will now undergo initial flight testing before being delivered to Edwards Air Force Base, California, where it will be used to demonstrate a range of potential logistic use cases. Joby said in the press release, the aircraft, which has a flight range of up to 100 miles, can take off and land like a helicopter and reach flight speeds of up to 200 miles per hour. It can carry up to four passengers, and the company says it is nearly silent in cruise mode and 100 times quieter than conventional aircraft during takeoff and landing. The prototype was built on the company's assembly line in California in partnership with Toyota, its biggest investor. This first aircraft coming off our pilot manufacturing line is a really, really big deal for the company. Joby founder and CEO says the manufacturing line can build tens of aircrafts per year and the company is working with Toyota which has a significant number of engineers on site with us working shoulder to shoulder here in California on building a facility that can produce the EVTOL in larger quantities. Joby's more traditional EVTOL design isn't the only craft getting a special airworthiness certificate from the FAA, self-described as a flying car, maker ALEF, that's A-L-E-F, aeronautics, was also granted limited flight permissions this past week. If we're going purely based on form factor, the ALEF Model A is certainly a flying car. It is a vehicle that can be driven along a road or piloted in the sky. 
It has a shape and dimensions of a full-size sports car, yet is anything but, at least as shown in simulator videos and as revealed in October when the company unveiled its Model A prototype. Instead of a solid body, the ALF Model A is made of a mesh and carries eight rotors that the company claims are more than enough to fly at a cruising speed of 110 miles per hour with a maximum range of 110 miles or 200 miles on the ground. And one of the aspects of the ALF Model A is its cockpit, which is able to hold up to two people, is on a double axis gimbal that the entirety of the car body rotates around during flight. Of course, with anything so out there that it looks more like a Snapchat selfie drone than a flight-capable vehicle, there are bound to be some, well, comments and catches. Like, for instance, the fact that its mesh body probably wouldn't do too well in a high-speed collision. Not to worry, though, the Model A is classified as a low-speed road vehicle, which, under U.S. federal regulations, means the Model A is limited to just 25 or 35 miles per hour, rules for which vary by state. If you want to go faster, A-Left seems to assume you'll take to the skies. Given the entirety of the vehicle is one giant wing, it also needs to be light. A-Left said that the weight capacity of the Model A prototype is limited to just 250 pounds, including occupant and cargo. The manufacturer said that it hopes to increase that before going to market with the Model A in late 2025. Aleph said in his press materials that it has been operating full-size prototypes since 2019, but it hasn't released any videos of its test craft in operation nor its prototype Model A. Everything included in its available media is simulated. When Aleph was asked, if it had any videos of the actual craft in motion, the spinners, well, they said that the FAA certificate was the first step in getting to public test. Now we can record a publicly available video of full-size prototypes driving and flying. So they said stay tuned for their upcoming press release with video in upcoming months. The spokesperson added that ALF had shown prototypes and early models off during private press events, some of which were included in a Forbes article from shortly after the company left Stealth in October of last year, but didn't offer any images or video. The company was also tight-lipped about what flight permissions the FAA granted with its certificate, saying that the details were obviously private and limited by location and purpose. If four years of flying without any public demonstration a lack of details and questions avoiding hasn't put you off. You can now reserve your very own ALEF Model A alongside the over 440 people who have done so since October. How much does it cost? It'll set you back though. The expected sticker price when the Model A arrives in the fourth quarter of 2025 is $300,000. Ads found to violate terms of service. The Wall Street Journal reports that 80% of YouTube ads violate terms of service, potentially costing Google billions in refunds. Research reveals that 80% of YouTube ads across the web 
violate Google's term of service. Advertisers have reportedly been overcharged, and potentially, refunds could result in a financial loss for Google. These findings bring to light serious concerns with possible far-reaching consequences. New findings reported by the Wall Street Journal reveal that approximately 80% of the ads YouTube serves across the web have breached its own terms of service, making them subject to refunds. This could cost Google billions of dollars, adding to the company's existing troubles, such as a growing discontent and search results and two ongoing antitrust lawsuits. Google refutes claims made in the report, saying its methods are inaccurate. Advertisers pay YouTube to display their ads on the platform before or after videos. However, according to research by Adalytics, about half of those ads are not actually shown on YouTube. YouTube also shows ads on other websites and mobile apps through its Google Video Partners program. Google claims that these third-party sites provide the same ad experience as YouTube with audio enabled, fully visible ads that can be skipped. However, Adalytics found that ads on these partner sites are muted 80% of the time, autoplay off to the side of the screen, and cannot be skipped. In other words, the ads advertisers pay YouTube to display are not receiving the exposure or experience that YouTube promises. The financial impact is substantial. Brands usually pay about $100 for every 1,000 views of their ads on third-party sites, expecting high-quality ad placements. However, Adalytics found that lower-quality ads were typically shown instead selling for only $5 per 1,000 impressions. In other words, Brands are paying a premium price expecting their ads to be prominently featured on YouTube. But in reality, more than half of their ad budgets are spent to show inferior ads on non-YouTube properties. This difference in price and quality represents a major discrepancy, costing advertisers a lot of money. The Adalytics study examines ad campaigns from over 1,100 major brands, representing billions of ad impressions between 2020 and 2023. Large brands with ads inappropriately placed on disreputable websites include Johnson & Johnson, American Express, Samsung, Sephora, Macy's, Disney Plus, and The Wall Street Journal. Even government organizations such as Medicare, the U.S. Army, the Social Security Administration, and New York City municipal agencies were impacted. Their ads were found on websites spreading misinformation, hosting pirated content, and other low-quality sites. This contradicts Google's pledge that ads would only appear on high-quality, carefully screened sites. In response, advertisers seem justifiably upset and are taking action to get their money back for these inappropriate ad displays. This threatens to damage Google's relationships with advertisers and credibility in the ad market. Global Chief Media Officer at ad agency UM Worldwide said, This is an unacceptable breach of trust by YouTube. 
Google must fix this and fully refund clients for any fraud and impressions that failed to meet Google's own policies. Google released a statement refuting claims made by Analytics. Google said the report used unreliable sampling and proxy methodologies and claims about Google Video Partners, that's the GVP network, were extremely inaccurate. Google wants to clarify that the overwhelming majority of video and campaigns run on YouTube, not GVP. GVP is a small separate network used to help advertisers reach additional audience and increase campaign reach by over 20%. Advertisers have full control and transparency over their GVP campaigns, Google said. They can opt out of GVP anytime, exclude specific websites, and get real-time reporting on where the ads appear and how much is spent on YouTube versus GVP. Google also defended GVP ad quality and viewability, saying over 90% of GVP ads are viewable, well above industry averages. Google partners with third parties, Double Verify and Moat, that's M-O-A-T, to validate GVP ads. Between its internal enforcement and third-party verification, Google says advertisers can feel confident in their ad placements on GVP. The revelations from the Analytics report could have the following far-reaching consequences for Google, its advertisers, and the digital advertising industry. Google's reputation could suffer because of these results. Advertisers may lose faith in Google's promise to offer high-quality ad spots. This loss of trust might lead advertisers to spend their money differently. They could advertise on different platforms or demand stronger rules to ensure high-quality ads are placed well. Google may have to pay back billions of dollars to advertisers due to issues with its ad systems. This could substantially reduce Google's revenue at a time when the company is facing other problems. Google's search ad business is weakening, and the company also faces several antitrust lawsuits. The report from Analytics could encourage government regulators to investigate Google's advertising systems and policies more thoroughly. This increased scrutiny could potentially result in Google receiving financial penalties or other punishments. Advertisers may also pursue legal claims against Google to recover the money they lost or to force Google to revise how it places ads to prevent future issues. The problems identified in the report shows that the more transparency and oversight are needed in how digital ads are bought and sold. There are a few ways this could be addressed. New industry best practices or rules could be established to hold companies to higher standards. Newer technologies could be developed to verify better that ads are appearing alongside appropriate content. Governments could pass laws or regulations mandating more transparency and accountability. The overall goal would be to ensure advertisers get what they're paying for. To address the criticism and backlash, Google may have to put more effort and resources into improving how it places and monitors ads. Some options could include the following. Thoroughly screening the websites where Google ads appear. Being more transparent about how 
and where ads are targeted. Closely watch where ads appear to ensure they appear alongside appropriate content. If Google can fix these problems, it may be able to win back advertisers' confidence, repair its reputation, and avoid losing more money. Presenting the IT Pro Series with Benjamin Rockwell. This is Benjamin Rockwell, and now it's time to get down to business. This is where we spend just a moment or so talking about computers, technology, and the workplace. Donald reached out to me. What is the difference between a network engineer and a software engineer? All right, so uh, the differences are as far apart as being a dentist and a dermatologist. Let's address something here first. Uh, we'll, we'll go with Donald's initial question. A network engineer deals with different ways of our computers connecting to each other. And that is the network. And that may go on out into the internet. A software engineer is going to be somebody who works on creating software. So they're quite a bit different. I'm going to take you on back. I'm going to take you back in history uh, where just having a job in computers meant that you knew everything, even though you didn't. <laughs> You're a nerd. You can fix X. You can fix Y. You can, you can handle Z. And that wasn't quite the case. We're, we're, we're talking 30 years ago. As long as you had some level of nerd quotient going on, they figured that you could figure it out. I mean, that's, that is one of the ways that I wound up getting a few of my jobs. And they just saw, hey, you, you, you've got this computer stuff and you can come on in and you can, you, you talk a good game. Now, mind you, I did know my stuff, but I also saw other people going into the industry that, yeah, they weren't so good. So there's the idea of a generalist. And they understand a large number of areas, but they're all—they're not going to know all of the nuances as they get deeper in. They're going to be able to handle a lot of different things. And then there are specialists, and these specialists are able to troubleshoot their specific specialty, that's why we call them specialists, down to the root cause. Frequently, they won't even have to call upon tech support or anything like that. Today, generalists wind up in two different directions. So they will wind up in management. They understand a lot of the different technologies that are working together. They understand a lot of the different layers that are involved. They understand the entire breadth, but they're not going to get into that depth. They're going to be able to handle the entire location of a smaller company and they're going to have some of that freedom to look up details as they move along. Unlike, of course, the specialist who is going to be pigeonholed into one particular subdivision of information technology. I want you to think of it like this. We, we go back to that, that idea that I mentioned initially here. The differences being between a dentist and a dermatologist. Similar to medical practices. A generalist is that country doctor. They know everything. They're going uh, to be able to handle a lot of the different things that come their way. 
Are they going to be able to handle everything? No. Are they going to be the one you want to rely upon for the specific intricacies of brain surgery? No. But they will be able to say, hey, I think you need to see a brain specialist. I think you need to see a kidney specialist, a a cancer specialist, whatever it is. Even amongst cancer, there are all kinds of different specialties that they have with whatever it is. Every part of our body. (laughs) You know, you've got your ENT, you've got your your cardiologist, you've got all of this. Head to toe, there are specific doctors that will handle different things. Again, being a lot different than the country doctor. So what are we looking for these days? Well, it all depends. If you're in a large company, you may look for specialists for those different individual items there. If you're in a big company, you may also look for generalists because you do need the management that understands the technology. So in Donald's case, he was looking at what it is to move into one of these different fields. And you're going to have to kind of focus. You're going to have to figure out a lot of these different specialties that come along, even amongst software engineers. You have to figure out what it is that you want to do as far as programming. What what kind of programs are you uh, going to deal with? But even what kind of computer languages are you going to be dealing with? In a network engineer situation, you will have to figure out you're going to be doing a lot of hardware, but you're going to be working with hardware on the software side, meaning you're dealing with the interaction of that hardware uh, to that hardware, going into these network routers and saying, or switches or whatever it is that you're working with and say, okay, this is how we want to move the signal around. You become a network engineer. It's very much like the guys who design our highway systems and saying, okay, this is where all of the cars are going to go. This is how we're going to route them along. This is how we're going to move all of the in this case, signals from point A to point B. And you need to study that. You need to study a lot of those paths. See, there's so many different directions we can go in with technology, with finding a job that is going to really take us the rest of the way. I will tell you that some of these jobs will evolve. Many of them, no, uh, most of them, require ongoing learning In the span of my career, just 30 some odd years, everything has changed and I've had to continually learn. In Donald's case and in everyone's case, you're going to have to really make sure that you're following along and you're advancing regularly. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. What is OTA-TV? OTA stands for over-the-air television. When we talk about OTA-TV, we're talking about over-the-air TV, which is the free TV that you can pick up with an over-the-air TV antenna. OTA-TV is free. It also includes some of the major channels from cable, which makes free over-the-air TV one of the best tools you can have as a cord cutter. Looking back 35, 40 years ago, this was the way we watched television. OTA TV is over-the-air TV, 
and the over-the-air TV part is abbreviated to OTA and it makes its way into all sorts of terms. The antennas that we can use to watch OTA TV are often called over-the-air TV antennas, or just OTA antennas. DVR devices that allow you to record OTA TV are called OTA DVRs, and so on. In each case, OTA just remind us that we're talking about over-the-air channels. Over-the-air channels broadcast over-the-air. Channels have their own broadcast towers. The broadcast towers and your distance from your local station broadcast tower, along with any obstacles between you and it, will determine how easy or difficult it is for you to pick up that station signal with your over-the-air TV antenna. Broadcast towers tend to be staples of channels with local programming. If you have a local action news team, then you probably have a local broadcast tower too. To understand why that is, we need to go back to the earliest days of TV. Over-the-air TV channels date back to the original TV networks. Old-school TV networks broadcast from their own broadcast towers, which were connected with cables, hence networks. The original networks, which included ABC, CBS, and NBC, dominated TV, and all of this was done with broadcast towers and TV antennas. Cable eventually became our main way of watching TV content. The modern big four major networks today, that's ABC, CBS, Fox, and NBC, are now available through big cable providers like Comcast and Charter Spectrum. For a while, it seemed like everyone had forgotten about OTA. But these networks never stopped broadcasting over the air. And there are plenty of other channels that still go out over the air. OTA TV never went away, and eventually many of us began to rediscover it. As cable television subscription expense has soared to unsustainable levels. The cord-cutting revolution again. Modern OTA TV is digital thanks to the analog-to-digital switchover of 2009. If you use a modern antenna and modern TV, you'll get crisp, high-definition picture over the air. Modern technology makes it possible to convert OTA TV into streaming video and even to record it onto hard drives and replay it at will, just as you can with a cable DVR. Those old-school network giants... ABC, CBS, NBC, and the rest are still free over-the-air TV, but they're not the only things that you can watch. What channels can you watch for free over-the-air? Which networks are broadcast networks and which ones are network channels available only on cable? Which channels you can watch for free over-the-air will vary a bit depending on your region, but there are a few basics you can probably expect. Some of the channels you may be able to watch for free over the air include ABC, CBS, Fox, NBC, and these first four channels are often called TV's big four major networks. Then there's CW, called the fifth major network, PBS, PBS Kids, Univision, which is Spanish language network, Telemundo, which is Spanish language network, and there are plenty of other over the air networks, too many, in fact, to start reciting them. The largest one, all of them, which made the list above, are available in many, many areas. But there are also plenty of small-time OTA channels that serve only certain regions. 
you'll never know what else you might find when you scan for channels with your new antenna. How does one get these OTA TV channels? The answer to this one is simple. Get an antenna. Antennas come in all shapes and sizes, including indoor and outdoor antennas and directional and omnidirectional antennas. They have different ranges and are made of different manufacturers and use different systems to denote their power and range. How can you choose the right one? When it comes to choosing an antenna, your best bet is to start with a simple question. What do you want to watch? If you're dying to watch Fox, but your local Fox station is 30 miles away, then you're definitely going to want an antenna with a range that comfortably covers 30 miles. If you don't care about Fox, and if ABC, CBS, and NBC are all within 5 miles of you, then you really only need a simple antenna for the short distance. Finding out where your local stations are is a piece of cake. There are several tools available. The one I use is tvfool.com. That's tvfool.com. If you're not comfortable putting your whole address in, by the way, you can use your zip code. Or just use your neighbor's address. They'll never know. Once you punch in the information, the tool will provide a map and a list showing your local stations. You'll be able to see at a glance which ones you might be able to pick up with an antenna of a certain range. Using the FCC tool to find nearby OTA stations, keep in mind that there are other things besides distance that matters to antenna reception. You'll get worse or no reception if there are hills in the way. You'll get better reception the higher up you are. Factors like these are why they make broadcast towers so tall. This isn't an exact science, but try to make your best bet as to what antenna range you'll need. Be conservative, because antennas will be labeled with their range under ideal conditions. If you're looking for a range of less than 60 or 70 miles, give or take, you can likely get by with an indoor antenna. The smallest indoor antenna costs just a few bucks, and it looks like a legal size sheet of thin cardboard. The more powerful ones may have a larger size and a small amplifier attached. These boost the signals after the antenna picks it up, which can be a huge help on weak faraway signals. You can buy amplifiers on their own. So it's always possible to improve the reception of an amplifier-less antenna after the fact. Outdoor antennas can be a bit more complicated but they still work in the same basic way. Outdoor antennas are sometimes directional, meaning they should be oriented in a specific way in order to pick up broadcast signal. This isn't usually a problem, as rural viewers will likely find their OTA TV or comes from one direction, the direction of the nearest large town. Outdoor antennas may be mounted on walls or roof with a cable running down to the TV. Whether you're using an indoor antenna or an outdoor one, your next step is to scan for channels. Go into your TV settings and look for an option labeled Scan for Channels or something similar. This will work a little differently on different TVs. If your TV doesn't know which frequency the channels are on, it won't be able to show you free over-the-air TV networks, and you'll think that it's not working. It's essential to scan for channels. Over-the-air TV antenna is all you'll need to watch free over-the-air TV. Plug it in, scan for channels, and you're all set. But if you want to get even more out of your over-the-air TV experience, 
Things don't have to end there. By the way, this form of watching television is not, and I repeat, not dependent on whether or not you have internet service. Presenting Technology Chatter with Benjamin Rockwell and Marty Winston. Marty Winston joins me now, and Marty, what do you have in your bag of tricks today? Well, it's the miscellaneous bag today. Okay. I'm going to start with Rolling Square. They've got some small and useful charging-related gadgets. Uh, I'm sorry, this, Rolling Square. So that's a, that's the company name? That's the company name. I was yes. I, I just had all kinds of visions going through my head. I was like, what? <laughs> all right, go on. Yeah, sorry. Don't invent wheels. It's okay. They sent me three of theirs. Tau, T-A-U, like the Greek letter, is a tiny power puck that doubles as a keychain. Comes with a mountable magnet-attached charger and offers short integrated cables with lightning and micro-USB and USB-C connectors. It's $29 at rollingsquare.com. Now, when you can get to a charger but aren't sure if you have the right cable, the -hmm. Rolling Square InCharge X is a single cable with USB-C and USB-A on one end, USB-C and a dual-identity micro-USB and lightning connector on the other. It all loops and tucks away into an end cap so you can carry it looped around a key ring. It's also $29. Okay, all right, all right. And the Rolling Square Edge full kit for laptops or tablets, it sticks to the back, can hold a phone, provide a 15-watt wireless charger, and also provide a 280-lumen light to give your face a little glow during Zooms. Okay, nice, all right, yeah. Now, that kit is $69, all of these at rollingsquare.com, and most are also at Amazon. Of course, yeah. Okay. Now, while, while we're glowing uh, in the aftershock of uh, the accessories, let's talk about the air you're breathing and whether or not it's too dry. Okay. Uh, Lavoit's Oasis Mist 1000S Smart Ultrasonic Cool Mist Tower Humidifier. Mm-hmm. Well... Local lore in Texas and Oklahoma say the people there sound like that because the air gets so dry. I lived in Fort Worth for 10 years and does get dry, but let's get mm-hmm. the cause and effect mythology. The target humidification level for a home is within 5 to 10% of 50%. That's easy okay. to remember, right? Okay, yeah. You might easily justify maintaining a small area slightly higher than 50% for a bedridden person experiencing breathing challenges or mm-hmm. some allergy mm-hmm. problems. Mm-hmm. Okay. Beyond that, the range of a humidifier, the reach of it, is limited, though its output mist will, to some extent, carry you across a ventilated home. Okay. Now, yeah. that's my context for reviewing the Lavoid Oasis Mist 1000S Smart Ultrasonic Cool Mist Tower Humidifier. It, the ambient air isn't too dry and your target humidification isn't too aggressive. It's 2.6-gallon water tank. That's a lot of water. That, it's, yes, can support it for up to 100 hours before you need to refill it. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. It, it, happily, it fills from the top, and a window lets you see the available water level. On the other hand, if your space is stubbornly dry, it can ultrasonically disperse up to 2.3 gallons per day, still meaning a full day of humidification that's, per tank. That's a lot. Yeah, that's a yeah. lot into the air. It would have come rated. in handy when I was back in Southern California. but <laughs> Sure. <laughs> It's rated for 300 to 600 square feet of coverage. And if there's any reason not okay. to use its control panel, like not wanting to wake up a snoozing, uh, snoring somebody, you can use its remote control, your voice, or its app. 
Okay. Lavoit Oasis Mist 1000S Smart Ultrasonic Cool Mist Tower Humidifier is about $150 at Lavoit, L-E-V-O-I-T, Lavoit.com or Amazon. Pretty sure you know how to spell Amazon. Um. Yeah. Yeah. I got that. <laughs> uh, yeah. That's, that's, the the, the Lavoit though did throw me. I was. I'm saying Lavoit. Lavoit. All right. L e. I'm sorry. L. L e v o i t. Is that what it was? L e v o i t. Now let's get our minds into the gutter. Huh? <laughs> Not well, on this show. We don't do that. <laughs> cleaning gutters. Oh, okay. All right. Not, not rain gutters. Rain it's gutters. Sometimes dangerous, even with good ladder skills. Okay, yeah. And it looks like everybody and their siblings are selling some kind of solution on cable TV. Some of them fully replace your gutters. Some of them just find ways to let yeah, water yeah. while covering the top. Some of them are do-it-yourself. Some come with the crew. Some of them will run you hundreds of dollars, some up into many thousands. So for a closer look, I got two different do-it-yourself gutter guard cover solutions from mm -hmm. Gutter Glove. One is aluminum with stepped ridges hosting lines of holes. There's mm -hmm. a folded up back wing that screws to the house just under the lip of the shingles and the ridges slant down to a front edge that screws to the lip of the gutter. Water okay. flows through, but leaves in debris don't. At least those that don't immediately fall off eventually get swept away or you can easily brush them off. Mm -hmm. for, for about 30% more, a small price premium, their stainless steel micro mesh offers a lot more flow through than any pattern of holes. It's mm -hmm. much finer than the mesh on a window screen, more like the mesh, the mesh on a faucet aerator. Uh, again, there's a connection to the house under the shingle line and another gutter lip plus recommendations on simply bending the mesh to create curves or troughs that help keep debris from collecting. Gutter guards from Gutter Glove. Uh, there's more info at gutterglove.com. Whatever you choose is indeed better and safer than always cleaning gutters. Yeah. Uh, so one of my concerns when I, when I'm thinking of this, okay, so it's got a fine mesh. So, uh, I know that mesh will, will, will gather smaller debris and, and concerns there. Have you seen anything like that with, with this? Well, it, it, it can, it depends where you are. If you're in a pine tree community, uh, mm -hmm. The yellow stuff that comes down for those trees will clog anything. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Right. If, if you're in an oak and maple community, there will be enough wind and, and weather to, to blow it clear. It, and it won't go through at all. So, it, it, you know, a lot of it, it is, it, is it, location it's your foliage. dependent. Okay. Yeah. All right. Very cool. Okay. So gutterglove.com. All right. This is Benjamin Rockwell. That's Marty Winston. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin, and thank you, Marty. Public Service Announcements Computer Club Meetings in the New York, New Jersey, Connecticut Tri-State Region Log on to the club website for more information on remote meeting ID. Tech Ed Connect Thursday, July the 6th Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom their website is wpcug.org. The Kings Bite Computer Club meets Tuesday, July the 11th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. They meet at the Park Plaza Restaurant, located at 220 Cadman Plaza West in Brooklyn. For more information, call 347-278-7320. The New York Amateur Computer Club meets Thursday, July the 13th. 
Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. And the website is nyacc.org. The Long Island Macintosh Users Group meets Friday, July 14th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. And their website is limac.org. And just to let everyone know, I'm aware that there is an issue with the website of the Amateur Computer Group of New Jersey, and they're working on recovering and restoring it to operation. Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on PRN, live streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. If you have any questions for us, just send us an email addressed to hank at pcradioshow.org. In the meantime, stay in touch and remember to do regular backups. I'm Hank Key, and on behalf of Michael Horowitz, Benjamin Rockwell, and Marty Winston, we thank you for listening. Stay safe and healthy till we meet again, same time, same station, next week.